Hi, and thank you for joining us today for our Precious Metals Royalty Conference. After lifting interest rates 10 times in the past year, the Federal Reserve is finally taking a pause, and this could lead to a lower U.S. dollar and re-acceleration of inflation, both of which will push gold and silver prices higher. There are many ways to gain exposure to precious metals, including buying physical gold through the GLD, investing in gold or silver mining stocks, or you can invest in a royalty company. A royalty company is not a mining company, but rather a financing company, which provides capital to mining companies. And in return, the mining company pays the royalty company back in the form of gold or silver production. The royalty model provides three primary advantages for investors. Exposure to gold and silver. No exposure to the many risks of an operating mine, such as geopolitical risk or exploration risk and upside potential associated with exploration and new discoveries. Where is the gold and silver price going and what royalty companies can you invest in to gain exposure to gold and silver? To answer these questions, we have assembled some amazing speakers and companies for you to learn from, beginning with David Garofalo of Gold Royalties, followed by John Reed of the World Gold Council, Nolan Watson of Sandstorm Gold, David Iben of Copernic Global Investors. Sean Usmar of Triple Flag Precious Metals. And we conclude with Michael DiRienzo of the Silver Institute. As a reminder, we have an open chat on the right-hand side of the screen, so you can ask a question or leave a comment. We will be running polls throughout the conference to get your views on gold and where you think the market is going, so please keep an eye out for them. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel, Wall Street Capital, and you can also follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I hope you enjoy the conference. Hi, David. Thank you very much for joining us today. Gold Royalty went public two years ago with 18 royalties, and now you have over 200, eight of which are producing. But I want to focus on three key assets, which will be driving growth in the near term. And I want to start with Canadian Malartic, which is Canada's largest gold producer. The asset which you have the royalty on is the Odyssey mine, which is the underground mine. Can you provide an overview of this asset, where it is in terms of its production profile and what it will mean to gold royalty when in full production? Well, there is a couple of unique aspects to that, very, very positive uh, uh, potential for that asset in that obviously Igneco is now consolidated ownership and there are going to be some synergies realized by doing that with the rest of the assets along that district that I know extremely well. I spent 12 years of my career at Igneco Eagle as we were building that district out, including Laurent, Goldex, Lapa and the like. So I think that's encouraging and they're likely to amplify their exploration efforts. So that'll help realize the geological potential of depth, particularly as they gain access for production. As they put that underground infrastructure in for production, they're also going to get better setups for exploration drilling. I have every confidence that that resource will balloon over time, even though it is substantial and supports 20 plus years of reserve life ahead of it. I think it has potential to grow for the foreseeable future. 
And you're right. We have uh, an NSR, 3% NSR over more than half of the underground resource at Odyssey. We have a limited uh, royalty as well in the open pit. We're actually generating revenue today from Canadian Malartic, but we have substantially better coverage on the Odyssey underground. But the other aspect of that deposit, and, and I'm sure you're going to pop up a slide later on that shows our royalty coverage along the contiguous properties around Odyssey and Canadian Malartic in particular, is they're going to have a lot of spare capacity in the mill. Uh, they're currently milling 60,000 tons a day from the open pit. But as they go underground exclusively over the next couple of years, they're going to go down to about 18,000 tons a day. That's over 40,000 tons per day of spare capacity in that mill. So it's become an economic imperative for Igneco to look for satellite deposits along contiguous land positions there, upon which we have substantial royalty coverage. So we're quite confident that over time, as they ramp up their exploration efforts to start to look for more sources of ore for that mill, we're going to get better royalty coverage over time. And when in full production, what will be the annual production at Odyssey? So it's going to be, uh, well, it's about a half a million ounces now at Canadian Malartic. It'll actually be a half a million ounces when it gets the full ramp up of the underground because it's substantially higher grade, even though it's much lower tonnage. But our royalty coverage is substantially higher. As I said, at least half of the deposit or half of the production will be uh, subject to our 3% NSR. So you're going to see a significant wrap up in our cash flows over the coming years as Odyssey comes on. You pointed to some of our other cornerstone assets. But those are driving 60% compounded annual growth in our revenue across our entire portfolio right through to the end of the decade, driven by Odyssey, driven by Cote, and driven by REN, which is the underground extension of, uh, of uh, the uh, Nevada Gold Mines uh, Gold Strike deposit. And David, you just mentioned Cote. I want to touch on this one now. That is the um, IM Gold Mine, which was located in Ontario. This mine has been plagued with many issues, but when in production, it will become Canada's second largest gold producer. Can you just give us an update on what's happening at Cote, and including when it will go into production? And when it does, what will that mean to gold royalty? Sure. Uh, well, it's 80% constructed as per the disclosure that IM Gold just put out with their recent quarterly results. So they're well advanced. They've done an exceptional job of recapitalizing the balance sheet to deal with what was astronomical cost overruns. You know, they've been played by inflation that really uh, the whole mining sector has been played by. I think that's why valuations are so depressed these days in the mining space, in spite of the fact that gold is near all-time nominal highs at $2,000 an ounce. Uh, but that's the beauty of the royalty model is we were completely insulated from that. Our exposure is entirely top line. We have a royalty on the high speed portion of the open pit, zone five, that be mined early on in the mine life. Our payback is very, very rapid on our $16 million investment on the acquisition of that royalty from a third-party prospector. Your third asset, which will provide significant cash flow when in production, is the REN project, which is the underground extension at the Gold Strike Mine in Nevada. What stage in is this project in, and when will it start contributing to cash flow? Yeah, so Red has already published uh, an inaugural resource of Barakaz as operator of nearly 2 million ounces at over 7 gram a ton material. So over seven times the grade they're mining from the open pit, uh, easily accessible from existing infrastructure. And of course, close to all of that surface infrastructure, the processing facilities that have been built out over many decades of operation at Gold Strike. Given the grade uh, being so high relative to what they're mining from the open pit, uh, Barak has said that they're likely to prioritize this into the mine plan quite shortly. And also they see three to five million ounces of potential there at that deposit. And they're looking at a, 
a, a production profile from the underground of about 150 to 200,000 ounces per year. And we have substantial, we have entire royalty, exclusive royalty coverage on that deposit through both an NPI and an NSR. David, one of the features which makes gold royalty unique is that you have a royalty generator model, and this is where the REN royalty came from. Can you just expand on this model and how it works and how it benefits gold royalty? Sure. You know, in the course of acquiring uh, Golden Valley, Abitibi, and Ely Gold over the course of 2021, we also curated some very capable people. Uh, we kept all of the principles from those companies on board. In in the case of Ely, Jerry Boffman and Trey Wasser, the co-founders of Ely, continue to stay with the company. Trey is on the advisory board. Jerry runs our business in the U.S. in Reno, Nevada. And Jerry, uh, many people know in the mining business, has been a prospector in Nevada for over 35 years. And he stakes exploration claims around existing mines, deposits, and then he waits for the neighbors to knock on the door. And then he farms the properties out and takes a royalty and option payments back and work commitments back. Similarly, Glenn Mullen, the founder of uh, Golden Valley and Abitibi Royalties, stayed on our board, and he runs a small uh, small part of our business in Valdor, uh, Quebec, doing exactly the same thing that Jerry does, and, uh, and coincidentally has a similar experience level to Jerry, over 35 years of prospecting in Quebec and Ontario. So both Glenn and Jerry bring an element to our, uh, our business model that didn't exist prior to the acquisition of those companies. It complements our capital markets expertise, our M&A expertise on our board of management, and our mind-building expertise with good old-fashioned prospecting, where, again, they stake exploration claims and farm the properties out and take royalties back. We typically uh, generate about two to three royalties per quarter doing just that. And it costs us nothing other than the sweat equity of Jerry and Trey and, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and Glenn, uh, effectively doing that work on the ground. They're collecting a salary anyways. They're keeping their ear to the ground. That gives us access to opportunities that perhaps some of our competitors aren't aware of because we have that kind of human resource, human footprint on the ground, but also it generates royalties very, very cheaply, uh, effectively just the cost of their, their, their efforts. And as you can imagine, we don't need a lot of those to hit to generate infinite rates of return because the cost of entry is effectively zero. So you mentioned that you're doing two to three royalties a quarter under this method. How many have you done in total? About 60 so far. So out of the 222 royalties we have in the portfolio, 60 were generated organically uh, through that model, either within Gold Royalty or in our predecessor companies, Golden Valley, Ely, and Abitibi Royalties. So they were generated very, very cheaply, very cost-effectively, and it introduced all sorts of optionality into our portfolio. And the great thing about our royalty model and anything in our royalty portfolio is we own them. We own them outright. They don't have any capital calls. Uh, they're perpetual assets, uh, infinite optionality. We can just be patient and wait for our operating partners to deliver on on, on the, the potential of those deposits. David, we spent some time talking about your three cornerstone assets: Malartic, Cote, and Ren. And I'm just wondering, you have a very large portfolio, but is there another explore co or development project in there that you think holds a lot of promise? Well, there's there's at least a couple. Um, and you know, ones that we like to point out is we're really encouraged to see Orla take over Gold Standard Ventures. We have a royalty on Railroad Pinion, and it looks like Orla is going to fast track that into development in fairly short order. And they certainly have the capital uh, capital available and the technical expertise given their success with Camino Rojo in Mexico. So very, very confident that 
that's now landed in the hands of a very capable operator. Similarly, uh, Walbridge owns the Fenelon project uh, along the Detour District on the Quebec side of the border, really just a few short kilometers away from the existing Detour complex that Igneco Eagle owns. And Walbridge now um, has is 10% owned by Igneco Eagle, but also has an executive chairman in Tony McCush, the former CEO of Igneco Eagle. And you, I think we've seen Tony's track record over the last several vehicles he's run. He gets them to a point where it becomes very attractive and compelling for an existing operator to tuck in. And so I have every confidence that as he delivers on that four and a half million ounce PEA study over the course of the next month or so, he's really teeing this up to be wrapped into a much larger operator with a bigger balance sheet and the technical capacity to bring it forward into production. But it's obvious given its proximity to the existing complex of detour that that's an obvious tuck in for Nico Eagle potentially in time. Again, a very large deposit, high grade in a district that's well built out, really brownfield in nature. Uh, we see a lot of potential there, and we have an exclusive royalty on that property as well. David, I want to move on now and discuss your balance sheet. A large part of your strategy is growth through acquisition. What is your liquidity position right now, and how will you fund acquisitions going forward? Well, we're very conservatively capitalized. We have virtually no debt on the balance sheet. We have a, a line of credit of $35 million with Bank of Montreal and National Bank. We've drawn on less than 10 million of that. So I guess a market cap of 300 million, very, very little debt on the balance sheet. And that's by design. We want to be conservatively capitalized. We do pay a dividend. We have about a 2% yield to current share prices. And given the growth that we see in revenue and the fact that our G&A costs are extremely flat, stable, we, we spent about $6 million on G&A costs, really largely on public company costs, DO insurance, listing costs and the like. We only have eight employees. And we could run a business 10 times the size with the same human footprint. So as you can imagine, every incremental dollar of revenue falls right to the bottom line and increases our potential uh, to, to pay increasing dividends over time. So we have plenty of free cash. We actually tip into free cash flow next year. And that's remarkable for a company that's only two years old that we've got from startup, really a blank sheet of paper a little over two years ago to free cash flow within three years, paying a dividend 10 months after our IPO. So we, we've been able to demonstrate through the success of our IPO and through a success of our M&A strategy that we can access capital quite readily. And really, we've built a company that's, um, uh, you know, that's scalable, uh, scalable in terms of the people we have, but also we've been careful to put in the building blocks for a sustainable business, include, including publishing our asset handbook last month, our ESG report. We're really setting ourselves up to be a sustainable business that can easily access capital from the largest institutions in the world because we do tick all the boxes in terms of our expertise, our transparency of our reporting, our ESG practices, our, our capital allocation practices. We're quite transparent about all of those and returning capital to shareholders regularly. You raise a very good point about your business being scalable. And when Gold Royalty was IPO'd, it only had 18 royalties. Now you have over 200, many of which came from M&A. Will you continue to acquire smaller royalty companies if it makes sense to do so from a valuation point of view? Well, it, it's hard to predict. M&A is, is, uh, is a tricky art more than it is a science. And, and Ian Telfer, who's the chair of my advisory board, often says to me, deals are done by people, not by companies. And, and it really depends on the chemistry between the, the companies and the windows of opportunity that open and close to make M&A happen. But what I'd say Inevitably, what will happen is there will be continued consolidation of the royalty space. Since we came on the scene and we instigated the whole consolidation theme in the royalty sector, 
And by buying three companies in 2021, we've seen eight companies in total disappear from the royalty sector, including Mavericks and Nomad in the arms of of other uh, peer companies as well. But there have been a number of other companies that have disappeared and been transacted upon. It's inevitable that the eight or 10 names that remain will probably end up consolidating to one or two mid-tier champions because that's really what's absent in the sector right now is there's two clear categories within the royalty sector. There's the category killers, the large caps in Franco, Wheaton, and Royal Gold. And then there's everybody else that I would characterize as relatively small cap. It's, and certainly a Cisco and Triple Flag have been meaningful steps to trying to capture that mid-tier uh, uh, mantle, if you will. But there's still quite a bit of room to grow. Uh, to get to that 5 to $10 billion market cap range where you're institutionally relevant, you're big enough, to be and liquid enough to be relevant institutions, but still small enough to grow because as good as those large cap companies are in Franco, Wheaton, and World, and they are tremendous companies, it's very hard to grow off of a base that large. And that's what the smaller cap and emerging mid-tier companies can offer investors is the potential to grow dramatically and capture a mid-tier uh, growth multiple, if you will, that hopefully will be superior to what the seniors are already getting in terms of their multiples to net asset value. David, before we wrap up, I want to get your views on M&A. You were the CEO of Gold Corp, which was acquired by Newmont in 2019. Newmont is in the process of acquiring Newcrest. Earlier this year, Ignico and Pan American acquired Yamana. Is M&A going to continue at this torrid pace? Inevitably. Um, and, you know, if you can't find it in the ground, you're going to have to buy it. And you know, we've seen reserves decline 40% from their peak in 2012. The, the industry simply has not reinvested in exploration of mine development. And that's been driven by, I think, principally by the fact that juniors have not had access to the capital markets consistently over a long period of time. It's almost been a nuclear winter really since about 2012. We've had periods and small, short windows where juniors have gone to the market, raised a bit of capital, but then it shut quickly. And so the lack of that investment by capital markets in exploration and the juniors, make no mistake about it, do all the heavy lifting on grassroots exploration. The seniors simply don't do that. They do brownfield exploration, but they don't do grassroots. Um, you know, the reserves are inevitably declining. And that downward trajectory is going to continue for the foreseeable future. So what are producers left to do but cannibalize themselves, right? If you're not finding the ground, you're going to have to buy your competitors. And it's telling that, you know, four short years after we engineered, Gary Goldberg and I engineered the Newmont Gold Corp merger, thinking that that set up the new Newmont for 6 million ounces of production for the next 20 years, they've had to go and do Newcrest because they couldn't sustain that 6 million ounces because the sector's shrinking. They're shrinking. Everybody's shrinking, and they're going to have to eat each other up. And I would say there's a, 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 a tier within the producer space, I would say kind of orphaned mid-tiers. They're finding it difficult to grow, and they're having to sell themselves. That's why Yamana disappeared recently. Uh, you know, I think Peter realized it was difficult for him to grow. He wasn't getting the kind of currency he needed to grow. And I think there's a number of other companies of that kind of scale that are kind of caught in between. Uh, they, they're not really big enough to attract capital and they're too small to really grow and have the currency to grow their business appreciably. I think they get taken out. I think the single asset producers or single asset companies get taken out just because of the existential necessity uh, of the seniors to replace their depleting reserves in production. So I do think eventually M&A will exhaust itself, but I still think there are quite a few names to be taken out in the space to create uh, companies of critical mass to attract that generalist capital back into the sector. Very interesting points. 
David, as we wrap up, what can investors expect in terms of news flow from gold royalty in the coming months? Well, well, look, um, you know, we we own our royalties are right. Uh, there will be no drama. Um, you know, we just have to wait and harvest the returns from all of the investments we've made over the last several years since our IPO. Uh, we own those royalties are right. We have well capitalized partners that are driving forward those principal assets that you and I were talking about earlier on. Uh, they're well advanced in their development. So really the 60% compounded annual growth in revenue is just a function of time. Uh, and we feel quite certainly, quite certain that we'll be able to achieve that growth simply because our operating partners advance those projects so capably. They have the balance sheet to do so and they have the technical capacity to do so as well. So we're very fortunate. We're in the best jurisdictions of the world with the best operators and some of the best assets. David, that was a great update and a great overview of Gold Royalty. I want to thank you for being with us today, and I look forward to an update in the future. Thanks very much, Jimmy. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the conference. Did you know that 80% of our viewers are not subscribers to our channel? So that probably means you, so be sure to hit that subscribe button. Hi, John. Thank you very much for joining us today. When we last spoke, much of our discussion was focused on central bank buying of gold. And as a reminder to our viewers, the central banks purchased 1,078 tons of gold in 2022, more than doubled, which was acquired in 2021 and the highest ever on record. And John, why don't we just start right there? Why have central banks been so aggressive in acquiring gold? Yeah, Jimmy, it's, uh, it's great to be talking to you again, I should say. Uh, it's been the biggest story in the gold market, I think, in the last uh, nine months. Uh, it's not news that central banks have been buying gold because they've been doing that uh, every year since the global financial crisis. I think they've averaged, I was calculating for another um, program I was on, 473 tons a year on average between um, 2010 uh, and 2021. So last year's figure of nearly 1,100 tons was a substantial increase on that, and as you say, a record. So central banks have been buying gold because it had demonstrated to them during the global financial crisis that having gold in a portfolio was a good thing to do. The buying was predominantly coming from countries that hadn't got very much gold in their reserves, but had built up massive reserves um, typically since the uh, Asian financial crisis in, uh, around 1990. So they had trillions of dollars of reserves, but a very low proportion in gold. So they've been buying uh, on a net basis every year. But then they really seem to have stepped up um, since about the middle of last year. And in fact, in the second half of last year alone, we estimate they bought about 800 tons. Um, so that's more in, in one half year uh, than the average of what they've been buying in four years since the global financial crisis. So the things that, that, that we believe are motivating central banks towards buying gold comes as a consequence of our recently released central bank gold survey. So we have connections with virtually all the central banks in the world, and uh, we poll them every year, loads of detailed questions on, on their views towards gold, whether they're going to buy it, how much they think uh, other central banks are going to buy, et cetera. So there's a big detailed report available on our website. But the three motivations for central banks to own or um, buy gold come down to inflation, 
which obviously is higher now than it has been over the last couple of years. Interest rates, which have gone up a lot, and I think the expectation is that they might stay high for a while, but then will come down again. And then finally, geopolitical concerns. And the geopolitical concerns, we think, are twofold. The first is the consequences of Russia invading Ukraine, and the war is still ongoing there. Um, that reminded people that there is a potential for, for conflict around, but it also saw the sanctioning of the central banks uh, of Russia's reserves, uh, such that they lost access to, I think I've seen figures of about half of their, uh, their, their reserves, which are tied up in the US financial system, or the Eurozone, or Switzerland, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's made central banks think a lot more about the risks that they could run should they offend the the powers of the of, of the currencies that uh, and, and, and the um, bonds that they are, so that's a factor. And I think the other one as well is that they're noting that uh, quite clearly um, this tension between the United States and China that that tension doesn't seem to be going away. It's a combination of of trade or mercantile tension uh, when you think about the various uh, chips. Um, blocks and bans and, and kicking certain Chinese tech companies out of the US. Um, but it's also the potential for um, for a conflict as China you know, might uh, at some point try for a forced reunification with Taiwan. So those three factors, I think, are, are, are the, the, the main reasons why central banks are buying gold. And if you think about it, each of those three factors has become more intense over the last year or two, and that seems to have triggered uh, a big increase uh, in buy from central banks. And when you look at central banks, are you seeing a difference in behavior between emerging market central banks versus those in the developed world? Very much so. Uh, almost all the central bank buying that we have seen um, since the global financial crisis, actually, has been from emerging market central banks. Uh, the one exception, or one sizable exception, uh, is Singapore, which is now a developed market. Um, but I'll touch upon that at the end. I think the reason that, that emerging market central banks is very clear, uh, are buying gold is very clear, uh, and that's because they've built up these enormous foreign currency reserves, but they haven't been adding gold to it at the same time. If you think about developed market countries, those countries ended up with a lot of gold uh, and the end of the Bretton Woods uh, Agreement back in 71, when the formal linkages between gold and currencies was, was finally broken. So at that point, because they were big international trading uh, reserve countries, they all had gold in their, in their reserves, and they had a lot of it. Whereas the emerging market uh, countries didn't have much in the way of reserves at all. And as they built up their FX reserves over the last 20 or 30 years, um, they hadn't been adding gold. Well, that changed after the global financial crisis. And, and I think the actions of some important countries are, re are, are really relevant here. So the fact that China now owns over 2,000 tons of gold has been adding to its holdings and disclosing those from time to time. It's currently in a, in a period when it's disclosing additions to its, its reserves. That's really important because China's the biggest beast out there in terms of the, uh, uh, the zoo of central banks and, uh, and, and their foreign exchange holdings. They've got about $3 trillion of foreign exchange reserves They've been adding gold. They still have a pretty small proportion of gold in their reserves, only around four percent, and that compares with you know high double digits for for the West. So the fact that China is buying gold, uh, I think, is making other emerging market central banks uh, look to see what's going on. 
And now that we are halfway through 2023, what are you seeing? What are the central banks doing in terms of gold purchases? Well, first quarter, uh, we report uh, an estimated 228 tons addition um, by central banks. Um, so not quite as much as we were seeing on average last year, but still a very decent amount. I also think that, that, that Q1 purchases are... Uh, usually on the slow side compared to what happens in the rest of the year. So I'm not not bothered by that. And certainly, first quarter 2023 central bank purchases by our records were the strongest ever first quarter. So yeah, started off well. Since then, though, um, on a net basis, we've seen a deterioration uh, in the amount of purchases that's going through. And in fact, we've actually seen, we just released our uh, April numbers um, a few days ago, and we see nets selling um, by central banks. And you know, the reason for that is because of disposals from one country primarily, um, and that's Turkey. So the Central Bank of Turkey has been selling gold, but it's been selling gold for very specific idiosyncratic reasons, and uh, and that's a topic in itself. To, to stick with the, um, the, the topic of... Uh, more global outlook for central banks. If you if you put Turkey to one side, then everything that we're hearing is that s- strong central bank gold purchases continue. They are a bit sensitive to the price in terms of uh, their activity. So when gold's up at a close to its all time high, the purchases slow down a bit. Um, and when gold is you know hundred or hundred and fifty dollars below the the recent highs then those purchases step up a lot. So I'm confident that the global story uh, of strong central bank purchases will continue uh, in 2023, um, but there will be potentially further sales to come from Turkey. So that's a great discussion on what's happening with the central banks. You and your team also speak with institutional investors throughout the world on a regular basis. What are you hearing from investors about gold as an investment? Are you getting more calls from pension funds, hedge funds, family offices? Look, we are getting more interest. There's no doubt about that. Um, what I would say is the flavor of the year so far has not been to massively increase gold holdings. I, I think the biggest trend I've come across in all the conversations I've had with investors is that higher yields make fixed income investments, whether that's government bonds, whether that's high quality corporate bonds, much more attractive at these levels. So there's no doubt, I think, that the reflex from the institutional investment community and and from high net worth individuals and savers is to reach for yield. It's there. You don't have to do crazy things nowadays to get a decent yield. You can invest in high quality companies. So that's, um, that's the biggest trend, I would say, in the conversations that we've had. When you speak in more detail, though, there's a lot of concern uh, amongst investors about the performance of bonds versus equities last year. If you think about the construction of a of modern portfolio theory and think of it as a 60-40 portfolio, 60% growth assets, equities, or things like equities, 40% in defensive assets like bonds give you a bit of yield as well, but protect your portfolio when equities sell off. But last year, of course, both equities and bonds sold off dramatically. So that's making investors think about their asset allocation decisions for the long term. 
So in other words, is the next five to 10 years going to be like the last 40 years when you, you bought equities, you bought bonds, performed very well, inversely correlated, um, and delivered good returns? Because bonds haven't always been negatively correlated to equities. I think that the bonds have mostly been negatively correlated for, uh, to equities because we've been in a big disinflationary cycle, really, since, uh, since 1979, 1980, all the way down to, what, 2020. Um, we saw inflation falling and then effectively boring. Um, and now it's neither. So inflation's much higher. Um, and it's certainly, I think the outlook for inflation has probably changed compared to what we've seen for the last 10 or 20 years. So under those circumstances, investors are thinking about their asset allocation. It means we can have conversations more easily about gold as a diversifier of portfolios, um, because the you know the the, the, uh, the historical inclination of having lots of growth-like uh, assets and then bond-like assets as a hedge to those, I think we can make the case that gold um, is probably a better hedge than it looked until maybe the last two years. John, as we wrap up, UBS is forecasting gold to climb to $2,100 by the end of 2023, $2,200 by the end of March of 2024. And I know the World Gold Council doesn't do price forecasting, but what are your thoughts on these estimates? I mean, we've seen Wall Street, for lack of a better expression, increasing their expectations for gold uh, over the last six months. I mean, I think the street generally was negative gold last year because they saw how um, real yields, tips yields, uh, were climbing and expected gold to follow. Now, that clearly didn't happen. Um, so now, I, I think Wall Street is looking a lot more positively towards gold. Now, in terms of UBS's forecast themselves, say we don't forecast, as you said, but um, those are not particularly aggressive forecasts, in my opinion. I can see a lot of positive drivers potentially for gold uh, over the next year or two. Um, the Fed is getting close to its uh, uh, its terminal uh, interest rate level. It you know probably doesn't hike in June. It probably hikes maybe one more time in in July, um, and then keeps rates constant maybe for the rest of the year. I think there's one price cut. Uh, priced into the curve in in December or something like that. But I think the expectation generally is that we're near the top and that after a while of being at the top, we're going to start to see rate cuts. Now, a rate-cutting environment is generally good for gold, um, particularly if the US uh, is cutting rates whilst other central banks may still be hiking and coming to the end of the, their interest rate hiking program. So that combination of falling rates and potentially somewhat weaker dollar um, could be pretty good for gold. Um, and look, there's always the potential that we see uh, a recession. Uh, I still have a more than 50% chance of a recession in my mind, probably later this year, maybe into early 2024. Um, and it's probably not going to be a bad recession, uh, just a, a normal run-of-the-mill recession. But as we've seen from the events of the uh, of the banking failures over the last few months, um there are stresses and strains out there that, that could, under certain circumstances, uh, turn a run-of-the-mill recession into something more nasty. So that combination of expecting interest rates to come lower at some point over the next 12 months, expecting a reasonable chance of the dollar weakens, 
and with the chances out there of um, a recession quite high and potentially something more than a recession, probably quite low, but it's still there. I, I, I think the sort of forecast that, that UBS um, has made and that you've mentioned, they're certainly not unreasonable. I think there's going to be more tailwinds for gold than headwinds uh, over the next 12 months, particularly after we've seen gold correct from its you know its highs around 2060. We're now currently around 1960, something like that. Quite a bit of short-term speculative money has come out of gold, um, and positions aren't that crowded. So should the conditions t- uh, be right, there's a room for quite a bit of money to come into gold in a short space of time. Well, John, I want to thank you very much for sharing your insights on what you are seeing and hearing in the gold sector. And I look forward to our next discussion, hopefully when the gold price is significantly higher. Thanks, Jimmy. Great speaking to you as ever. Thank you very much for joining us today. You and your team have been very busy in the past year realigning your portfolio and implementing many new initiatives to unlock value. But before we discuss these initiatives, I want to first start with clarifying the confusion around Sandstorm deletion from the NYSC ARCA Gold Miners Index. And I want to discuss this because of the significant move that did happen and the number of shares that traded. Maybe you can just start by telling us what exactly happened. Yeah, well, it certainly made for an interesting Monday for me. <laughs> uh, it was just an absolute uh, surprise mistake that the people who calculate the index, uh, they go through and every quarter they calculate whether which companies qualify for the index or not. And they just simply made a mathematical error and a surprise deletion of Sandstorm. And so we woke up to share price down 10% and trading tens of millions of shares and mass confusion about what was going on. And uh, fortunately for us, we just simply um, walked them through the math and they reversed course and the sandstorm were, were about 70% precious metals going to 80% precious metals. So for us, whereas uh, gold and silver focused as, as a company can be that's in the index. So that'll never happen again as, uh, as long as they don't make the math error again. That's a great explanation. Thank you, Nolan. Uh, I want to move on now. You have t- undertaken several initiatives to unlock value for shareholders, and I want to touch on these in- initiatives, which includes the formation of a new company called Horizon Copper, which includes the copper assets from Sandstorm. Why don't we just start with what the rationale was for starting this new company and spinning out these copper assets? Yeah, there's really um, a twofold part process to the logic of that. The first was if you go back a couple of years ago, Sandstorm, one of our larger assets was an asset called a hot mod and, and it's uh, gold and copper. And the form that we owned that asset in was a uh, 30% minority interest in the actual asset. And a lot of feedback we were getting from shareholders uh, was that, look, we understand that hot mod looks and feels like a, a stream in the sense that it's so high quality and it's going to cash flow so much and the operating costs are so low. The fact of the matter is it's not actually a stream and we would like you to uh, turn Sandstorm back into a pure play streaming in a royalty company only and go sell that asset and take back a stream. And so we had heard that feedback from virtually all of our investors and and we concurred and we decided we were going to do that. 
So that was step one. So we, we created this company, Horizon Copper. We sold off the hot mod and direct ownership uh, in the mine. And we took back a pure gold stream. So sand, turned Sandstorm back into a pure play gold streaming and royalty company. So that was step one. Step two was uh, we're a big believer that the green energy transition and the trillions of dollars of capital that's going to have to be spent to rebuild the world's infrastructure is going to create a massive worldwide deficit in uh, in copper production relative to the demand coppers used in production of electric vehicles and wind and solar and electrification of, of everything. And it just so happens that as the world builds all of these new copper mines, it's going to have to over the next 20 years, that some of the best gold byproduct streams that exist come from byproducts of copper mines. And so we thought, well, since we've already created step one, this horizon thing to turn Sandstorm back into a pure play company, and it's sitting here in the office, why don't we have it go hunt for copper mines to buy? And Sandstorm Gold can be its exclusive uh, buyer of streams and royalties on that gold byproduct. So really just the step two of the logic was it has the potential to be a really good source of Sandstorm buying more gold streams in the future. And in addition to hot modern, what other copper assets does Horizon Copper own? Yeah, so it owns two other assets. Uh, one is an NPI royalty on the Antamina copper mine in Peru, one of the, the largest and lowest cost copper mines in the world. And it owns a 25% stake in a company called Entree Resources, which has a 20% joint venture interest on the Ovia copper mine in Mongolia. And what percentage of Verizon Copper does Sandstorm own? So Sandstorm owns 34%, and that's the absolute cap that will ever go above. So the way it works is uh, as long as we own 30% of Verizon, we have a contractual right of first refusal for any streams and royalties they do. So they, they have to come to us and can't phone our competitors. They can't phone the Franco Nevadas as long as we maintain that equity interest. Uh, if we dip below 30%, then they can go and offer the streams and royalties to our competitors. And when you said Horizon Copper is going to focus more on the energy transition theme, in addition to copper, will it also look at other metals such as lithium? No, it's going to focus solely on things uh, specifically focus on copper and not just copper, but specifically copper in situations where there is a strong gold byproduct so that Sandstorm can buy the gold stream and gold royalty to help them acquire the mine. Nolan, Sandstorm produced 82,000 ounces in 2022 and guidance for 2023 is 95,000 ounces. And this will grow to 125,000 ounces in the subsequent years. And I want to, want to touch on two of your development projects, both of which will have a meaningful impact on the growth in production, beginning with Greenstone. What's the latest on Greenstone? Where is it in terms of its construction? And, and when it is completed, what will this mean to Sandstorm? Yeah, so Sandstorm has a number of assets in construction or going into construction. Greenstone is sort of the, the next one that will be complete construction, if you will. And it's being built by Equinox. It's a very large, high quality, it should be a low cost mine in, in a good jurisdiction. Uh, we've got a, a stream on it. It's a very long life asset. And, and what I'm hearing the latest is they're on track to be complete construction and commissioning everything and commercial production next year. I'm told they're about somewhere between 70 to 80% complete construction of the mine already. So they're just putting the finishing touches on. And the second asset I want to touch on is Ivanhoe's Plant Reef. Why don't you provide an update on this asset and what it will mean to Sandstorm when in full production? 
Yeah. So there's, there's two phases uh, to that. The first phase, you know, over the next few years, we'll start getting a small amount of cash flow of kind of three to $5 million a year. But then there's a, a second part where they're, they're planning on uh, pulling forward development and massively expanding the capacity and daily processing rate of the mine uh, four or five fold. And so th- that'll take probably another five years to get to the final full phase of that. But once that's complete, um, Sandstorm should be getting 20 to $25 million a year, every year of cash flow just from that uh, plat reef mine that Ivan O is, is building and operating. So it'll be, and it's a multi-decade, very long life, very low cost mine. So it'll become kind of one of our anchor assets once it's fully up and running. And you mentioned that there's a number of other development projects within your portfolio, but is there another one that you would like to highlight that might, uh, that is getting close to production and that will have a meaningful impact in terms of your geos? Yeah, over the next few years, uh, the Robertson mine that, that Barrick is building is something that will give us a significant amount of cash flow. And then our, our largest development asset, uh, Hot Modern, uh, that one should be up and running over the next three and a half uh, years. I think 2027 is a projected start date for that now. A company called SSR Mining actually just came in and bought a 40% interest and they became the project operator just over the last uh, few months here and, and they're pushing it forward now. Nolan, I want to move on now and discuss your capital allocation. Sandstorm took on some debt in 2022 when it acquired Nomad and Base Corp. How will you allocate capital in the coming year? Will you focus on paying down this debt or will you return capital to shareholders in the form of higher dividends or buybacks? Yeah, so when we initially did those transactions, uh, we did prioritize trying to minimize dilution. So we took on quite a bit of debt. And between the debt that we took on for the transactions, plus when we acquired Nomad as, as one of those transactions, Nomad owed about $150 million on stream payments that they had not yet uh, paid. And so between those two, it was about $625 million US of, of effective debt that we took on, which was a lot for us. So we've been focusing all of our, our cash on debt repayment. We did a small equity financing just, just under a year ago. And then we've been taking all of our free cash flow and putting it against that. So we've already paid that down to about $465 million as of today. So it's come down substantially in a very short period of time. And we have a huge amount of cash flow that's starting to come in as our, our production goes up. So we're, we're just prioritizing taking down uh, that debt. We have allocated a little bit of capital, call it $15 million, to a couple of new small deals. Nothing, nothing significant of note there. And then uh, over the last month, there's been some real share price softness in, in Sandstorm shares as uh, some of the people that inherited shares in the Nomad deal sold about $100 million of their shares of us just in the last six weeks and caused some share price softness. So we stepped into the market. We bought back about 2 million uh, shares over the last four weeks. So that, that's kind of been our capital allocation going forward. It'll be the same thing. We'll just keep paying down debt. I keep getting lots of questions about what new deals are you going to do, but I think we're just going to stick to writing and keep paying down debt. We've, we've bought a billion, over a billion dollars worth of new things in the last year, and we're just going to let that mature and those those mines get into production. Nolan, I'm glad you brought up the fact that you were buying back stock earlier this year. But what about when we saw the mistake made by the index manager, the ETF, and the stock got hit relatively hard? Were you and your team active buying back stock then? Yeah, it's one of the benefits of having a share buyback plan in place. Um, we were able to phone up the bankers that morning. We saw our share price down 10%. And we phoned them up and said, buy back the maximum daily amount, which in our case is 
630,000 shares. So we bought back 630,000 shares that day down 10%. And then the index reversed course and our share price shot up 10% and it turned out to be a good opportunistic buy for us. Good for you. Not so good for the sellers. Unfortunately, yes. Nolan, I want to move on now and discuss valuation. You are trading at a below average NAV multiple compared to where you were trading in the past. And I just want to know what you and your team will do to realign this valuation in the coming months. Yeah, that's that's a great question. If you go back a year and you look at our mid cap peers, the Cisco's and the triple flag, Sandstorm is trading in a higher price to net asset multiple than triple flag and a higher price asset uh, multiple than, than the Cisco. Uh, if you if fast forward to today, we're trading at a dramatically lower number than them. And, and so what's what's changed? Um, we issued a lot of shares in those billion dollars worth of transactions. And even though they were accretive transactions to our net asset value per share, sometimes people forget that uh, in the sh short term, share price is determined based on supply demand fundamentals of that, that share price. If you create extra supply, it takes time for those shares to find their way into strong longer term hands. So when we bought Nomad, for example, one of their shareholders was Yamana. They got $50 million for the Sandstorm stock. Well, five weeks ago, there's no reason why Yamana needs to own Sandstorm. And so they they sold that $50 million for the stock and it put downward uh, share pressure on our price. Um, company called Glencore got $50 million of our stock six weeks ago. They sold, they're not natural shareholders of Sandstorm. And so it's taking time for those shares to find their way into fundamental longer term institutional investors. And so when you issue shares and stuff like that, it's a CEO's job to get on airplanes and travel around the world and go meet face to face with those institutional investors and tell them the story. I was in London a week and a half ago. I was in Toronto yesterday. I'll be in New York and Toronto next week and sitting down. It's actually very encouraging for me to see how well the Sandstorm story is resonating with huge multi-billion dollar um, pension plans and, and funds. They just go, this Sandstorm is a completely transformed Sandstorm from the one before and now sort of fits the profile of adding into high quality portfolios. And, and that story is starting to resonate. And I've gotten, again, name names, but specific feedback on a handful of multi-billion dollar funds that have started slowly buying Sandstorm shares. And I think they'll continue to do it for a long period of time. So I think the, the share price weakness is behind us. And uh, hopefully we'll start reversing that, that trading effect is there's no new supply of shares. And in fact, a reduction in supply and shares because we're buying back shares. And then I'll be out there creating demand for them. And how would you define these buyers or these investors that are showing an interest in your stock? Are they generalists or are they more focused on the uh, precious metal space? Uh, I would say 80% of them are generalists, actually. It's one of the things that the royalty and streaming model really appeals to. Because if you're a generalist investor, and you're investing in technology and biotech and you know, manufacturing, all these types of things, you can't be an expert in every industry. And mining is a risky thing to invest in. And if you're not an expert in it, you don't have technical knowledge, you can blow yourself up real bad by investing in the wrong mining company when there are technical mistakes. And so generalists really like to, if they decide to add gold exposure, do it by adding a, a streaming or a royalty company. Historically, Sandstorm's just been too small and our portfolio has been too immature to really be of substantial size enough to have a large generalist investor be able to invest in Sandstorm. But previously, we were just kind of too small and too illiquid if you go back six, seven, eight years ago. But today, telling this new story of Sandstorm for the first time when I'm out on the road, and they look at the size, the scale, the liquidity, the stability, the diversification, 
um, it's a story that they're going, yeah, this makes sense. I'll add it to the portfolio. So hopefully that, that continues. Nolan, as we wrap up, there's a lot happening at Sandstorm. Maybe you can just summarize for us what you and your team will do in the second half of the year. Yeah, unfortunately, the theme for Sandstorm for the next year or so is boring is the new sexy. <laughs> we're, we're just going to sit here and pay down our debt and tell the story. And that's, that's what's on tap for us. And just to summarize again, what cities are you going to visit in the coming weeks? Uh, Toronto, New York. I was just in London. And then we'll pick the next six cities after that. Nola, that was a great update on what's happening at Sandstorm. And I want to thank you very much for spending time with us today. And I look forward to our next update. Thank you. I appreciate it. Did you know that every time you hit the subscribe button, your name goes into a draw to win $1 million? I'm just kidding. But if you do subscribe, we will be very thankful. Thanks for your support. Hi, David. Thank you very much for joining us today. Copernic is a bottoms-up value investor with $6 billion in assets, and a large portion of that is invested in gold and gold equities. Why are you so bullish on gold? Well, great to be here. I always enjoy talking with you. Uh, as bottom-up investors, it has less to do with what we like and more to do with what the, the mob, the crowds don't like. We think they are very enthusiastic about a lot of things, and they are not enthusiastic about gold, which is pretty fascinating considering the money supply has recently doubled in the last four years, up 10 times in 15 years, and yet price of gold is where it was a dozen years ago, and gold stocks are cheaper. And as we talk later, we can talk about you know why that is and, and how cheap they are, but certainly it's massively undervalued. And when you say the money supply has gone up four times in the last how many years? Or, or two two times in the last four years. All right. So so would that imply that the price of gold should also be going up two times? It's funny. We spend a lot of time on that. We have uh, been boring people with this guy from 300 years ago, Richard Canelon, who talks about money being non-neutral. Yeah, the idea that if you double the money supply... It's not like everything doubles in price. Some things go up more than two times. Some don't go up at all. Some go up tomorrow, some in one year, some in four years, some in eight years. But in general, if you double the money supply, by definition, the money's lost half its value. It's lost half its value against everything. As Canelon pointed out, those close to the money, they get rich. Those not so close don't. The people that are really far away actually get or from it all. And so we spend a lot of time talking about which things are more likely to, to benefit. Uh, things that are scarce and needed are more likely to eventually capture a lot of this doubling in, in price. Uh, that would be commodities. Uh, gold, people can say, is better or worse than other commodities. There's arguments on either side, but uh, we would not be surprised to see that over time uh many things like that double out people could say maybe it was overvalued 12 years ago if maybe it was only worth uh, 1800 in which case 3600 
Uh, but the great thing about it is stocks are prices of the price of gold is never going up. So you get a sort of free call option on the idea that money supply might seep into the price of things over time. And I'm glad you brought up the valuation. I do want to go there. But before we do that, what percent of your fund is invested in gold and gold equities? Yeah, we as a firm don't allow ourselves to go more than 25% in any one industry. And we are 25% and precious metals mining companies. So uh, obviously we see a lot of value there. David, you mentioned earlier that 25% of your AUM is allocated toward precious metals. And of course, that can be allocated toward gold itself, or it could also be allocated toward the miners. What about royalty companies? Do you have any exposure to royalty companies? Yes, included in that 25% are three royalty companies. Additionally, we have a strategy we recently launched where we're doing royalties ourselves. They're they're pretty interesting. Uh, If you look at the story on gold, the bulls are right that the fundamentals argue for higher prices. Certainly the price it would take to, to bring on supply would be higher prices. If you look at gold as a monetary asset, then certainly the money supply relative to the gold supply is, implies many thousands higher. So the bulls are right, but the bears are also right. As I mentioned earlier, there's been massive uh, destruction of economic wealth. Uh, so. If you own the mining companies, you do have to worry about government changes, higher royalties, higher costs, uh, higher costs for the mining, higher costs for the building the mines, uh, all kinds of things can go wrong. And so uh, it is what it is. The stocks are cheap enough that they make a lot of sense even arguing for that. But the royalty companies, as most everybody knows, but I'll say it anyhow, they've got in a way the best of both worlds. So if uh, the price of gold goes up, they capture that. They are receiving metal. If uh, it costs more to build the mine, not their problem. If management gives themselves too many stock options, not their problem. You know, the government comes along, wants bigger royalties, not their problem. Yeah. And in a way, it's a beautiful model. I mean, mining, as we know, is a tough, tough business. Uh, Building a mine is especially tough. And so if you want to build a mine, you need capital. If the market is, as we've talked about, is pricing your equities at at cents on the dollar, you don't want to sell equity. Uh, You don't want to borrow money, nor does anybody want to loan you money at reasonable prices. And so if you're buying and interest starts to uh, eat you away, and then your mine takes five years longer to build, uh, not unheard of in this business, uh, then it really chews you up. Uh, cost overruns, you have to borrow anymore. And so obviously the the model of tell you what, we'll give you the money and you don't give us any interest. Uh, we will align our interest with yours. <laughs> yeah. You pay us no interest. If your mind takes longer to build, we will wait longer for a payment. If the price of your metals lower, you pay us in metals, we get less. Uh, yeah. If the price of the metal goes higher, we'll make a fortune, but so are you. Uh, we're perfectly aligned. And so it's good to have a business where you're aligned with the uh, with the miners. But because the miners need your capital, you can structure very, very sweet deals. And of course, the uh, a lot of the royalty companies tend to be very smart guys. 
And so they have the upside without the downside, plus the ability to, uh, you know, uh, build some pretty sweet deals with the companies themselves. And since a lot of these are, we give you the money now and you give us the money back five years from having nine, I think they benefit from what I talked about earlier, the fact that uh, prices are likely to go up in the future and the world's pricing them is going down. So I think for a lot of reasons, the royalty companies are very well positioned. So that's a great overview of gold and why you're so bullish on it. Now, I always enjoy speaking with you about the general markets and the economy overall, and I'm curious to hear your views. And every time we get together, it seems like there's always sort of some sort of craziness going on in the market. And in spite of what's happening with interest rates and the slowing economy, the general markets are doing relatively well. The NASDAQ is up 30% on the year mostly due to five stocks, one of which is NVIDIA, and that's up over 150% on the year. The market cap is well over a trillion dollars now. But what are your thoughts on this, on the markets, and, and also the economy? Yeah, it would be interesting. It's been a while since I've seen it done, but the market cap of all the gold and precious metal companies put together, what that adds up to, it's got to be far less than the quarter trillion dollars it is the one hour increase in the market cap of nvidia yeah <laughs> quarter trillion in an hour and, and i guess when you take interest rates to zero or negative for a decade then uh, crazy things should happen and so we've been seeing already the uh, ill effects of the malinvestment from these crazy things you know, complete wipeouts in different industries and a lot of the problems the banks are having so the problems are starting to to show up at the same time all that liquidity is still sloshing around out there uh, people obviously are you know still more in a mode of fomo their fear is of missing out people do not have a fear of losing money even after last year when people were losing money the mindset is still wait for any hint of good news and pile into the crazy stuff. So that uh, that probably means there's a lot more problems to come for the economies and the market. But for us, the best thing, just like 99, which was also a rather crazy period, uh, market was crazy, value stocks were very cheap. Now the market's arguably crazy and value stocks are very very cheap so we we're feeling pretty good but it is fascinating to watch what's going on out there and the fed has lifted interest rates 10 times in the past year and certain sectors have felt a lot of pain because of this and i i guess the regional banks would be the number one sector we've already seen silicon valley bank and signature bank go um i guess First Republic got bought out by J.P. Morgan. Credit Suisse was for, forced to merge with UBS. But what are your thoughts on what's happening there? It's been interesting because when they started to raise a year and a half ago, whatever it was, people said rising interest rates are bad for gold, good for financials. And we said, well, great, except for we think it's 100% wrong. Yeah, I think after 40 years of falling interest rates, if you want to see what happens, go back more than 40 years ago. Take a look at what happened in the 70s the last time. And uh, 
rising rates was not good for financials. Yeah, high rates might be good for financials, but the process of becoming high is, is tough for people that have either credit risk or duration risk, and you know, the market's starting to realize that. The idea that rising rates is bad for gold is just completely wrong. So we say, all right, so in the early 70s to the late 70s, rates went from a couple percent to 20. So that must have been horrible for gold. How bad did gold fall? Well, no, it went from 35 an ounce to 800. 800 an ounce. We say, all right, so then the next couple of decades, interest rates went from 20 back down to three or four. So that must have been nirvana for gold. Nah, gold fell from 800 down to 255. Yeah, so uh, people get confused that you know what matters is real rates, not nominal rates. And so what happened in the 70s, very much like now, you've got inflation kind of migrating through the system, uh, splashing from this area to that area. And as that happened, uh, inflation goes up and interest rates go up while we stay in below the inflation rate. So still negative interest rate. You know, that's happened in the 70s and the price of gold went up and up and up. It didn't fall until Paul Volcker took rates way above the inflation rate. That was a very painful thing to do. And that was bad for uh, gold and so the seeds for financials to go very well. Uh, we would suggest now as pretty similar. One of the few places where we agree with the crowd is the idea that with 31 trillion of debt out there, it's highly unlikely they can allow rates to become positive in a real sense and you know, above the inflation rate and stay there for any period of time. So it's quite likely uh, negative real rates are, are here to stay. And that's very bullish for gold and, and other stores of value. And Dave, as we wrap up, the gold price has been hanging around $2,000 an ounce, which is at or near an all-time high. Do you feel it's different this time? Is this the time gold will break through $2,000 and just keep going? Uh, I mean, I guess every time I think maybe this is it and it hasn't been, so I don't know that my opinion is that valuable, but quite likely it might be like the Dow Jones, where when I came into business, it repeatedly bounced its head off $1,000 and People didn't think it could stay, and finally it blasted up. <clears throat> now we've had a dozen years of failing to really get above 2,000. Uh, maybe this is it. Certainly uh, with Silicon Valley Bank, the, the Fed tipped its hands. They will print money for any problem. And uh, we still have all that money from the last 10 years sloshing around. You have nobody building meaningful gold mines here. Uh, a lot of debt that probably needs to be monetized. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if gold doesn't break out a lot higher, but I've been premature a lot of times before. <laughs> well, Dave, that was a great discussion, and I want to thank you for spending time with us today and sharing your thoughts on gold in the markets. And I look forward to our next discussion. All right. Thank you. Great talking to you. Thank you.
Sean, thank you very much for joining us today. One of the unique features that separates Triple Flag from other royalty companies is the relationship with Elliott Investment Management, which is a large hedge fund based in New York. It has over $50 billion in AUM. Maybe you can just touch on how this relationship started and what are the benefits of having Elliott as a partner. Hey, Jimmy, it's good to see you again. Um, I suppose I can sum it up in a word, and that's probably serendipity. Um, you know, Elliott are a fund that have been around for, I think, 45 years or so. Uh, I think one of the things that drew me to them is their track record and their tenure. So I think over their history, they've had something like a 13 or 13 and a half percent compounded annual return, uh, multi-strategy. Uh, and I think they've had two down years in all that time. There were single digits, and that included the financial crisis. So it's incredible. And, you know, they're not uh, mining investors. But you know they're always concerned about inflation and some of the central bank policies and money printing. Gold is uh, part of the exposure that they like, and they've really admired the streaming and royalty model as executed by Franco over a long time. And the idea that brought us together was on their side. Having studied that, the question is: Could you create you know a Franco-like vehicle, uh, grow it without the oil and gas exposure, and commit you know meaningful capital? Uh, we we thought about putting about a billion to, uh, US dollars to work at the time. And from my side, having always been in the best metals and the precious side, you know, I left Barrick where we had done a streaming transaction as uh, part of the restructuring in 14 through 16. And um, you know, the ability to structure these larger transactions, we did a $610 million uh, stream of Colivier. It was a really interesting window that firstly, as a CFO at the time, how narrow the equity windows were for uh, gold and for miners, how unreliable when you need them. And also, you know, when you've got a lot of debt, um, there's only limited options to repay your balance sheet other than the obvious things of improving your cost structure um, and improving your, your life mine plans. So the streaming really was a, a highly um, effective cost of capital. It had some interesting risk characteristics associated with it. There were only a few guys who could do these deals and structure them. So when you think of the space, being able to bifurcate um, the competitive landscape, there's a lot of guys who can come in on the small side, low barriers to entry. Usually they're accumulating royalties from that others have put in place. Maybe they have an incubator model, but it's a, it's an area that new entrants can come in a lot more easily. Elliot allowed us to be able to immediately compete with the big three. And that was the idea as a private vehicle was to target sensible transactions and returns over time. And that with a view that we would transition to the public markets if we could successfully execute, which is, you know, what we were able to demonstrate over time. So, you know, we were private for five years. Uh, we deployed, you know, about 1.7 US uh, billion US dollars uh, with Elliott as a private business. So it was about 1.1 billion net when we IPO'd on the TSX in 21. And then we did New York a year later. Uh, today, you know, they were our sole capital provider as a private business management, uh, earned equity by virtue of generating returns as the, you know, as free carried interest, uh, which is common with the, the private equity model. And, um, you know, on the IPO, they were down to 82%. And with the Mavericks transaction last year, um, or early this year, they were down to 62 and they've come back up to about 67%. But I think their evergreen time horizon in a cyclical industry uh, and just the the very pragmatic, um, sophisticated way of looking at investments has been a, a great asset to us. And do they have board representation? 
They do. So they've got one uh, representative uh, with Mike Cicerelli, who's <clears throat> been part of this journey and was really the architect within Elliot of understanding the opportunity of the streaming and royalty precious metals model. Uh, and, you know, we, we were brought together uh, over seven years ago. So he's he's on the board, uh, brings great value to us. They have other nomina- nomination rights, but those uh, they're really just uh, the rest are independent directors other than myself. That's a great overview. And I want to move on now and examine some of your assets. Triple Flake has experienced significant growth in the last few years, having gone from 75 to 229 assets in geos, having grown from 33,000 to over 100,000 this year. And I want to focus on some of those assets that are really driving the growth, beginning with North Parks, which is a large copper mine in Australia. It's the largest asset in your portfolio, representing 24% of NAV. And a new Black Cave mine came into production in 2022 called E26. How are things progressing at this new expansion and how has it contributed to Triple Flag's growth? Yeah, it's um, the short answer is it's it's doing what we hope to. And, uh, you know, it's our single largest um, individual investment, which we did at the start of COVID for 550 million US dollars. A copper mine that's been in operation for 30 years and it's got decades of life ahead of it. And, you know, we're streaming gold and silver as, as byproducts. Um, you know, I think an important feature, though, of our strategy when we're building a business like this was trying to target mostly producing or near producing assets with big margins so you can redeploy that capital and continue a sensible growth journey. And as you pointed out, uh, when we started in 16 from scratch, we weren't spun out. You know, it was through acquiring businesses like that where we've been able to demonstrate that 21% cumulative annual growth rate. We'll do about 27% last year. Uh, on, on you know, last year's number as well this year, and we've got substantially more growth before. And North Parks is a very large part of that. Um, uh, James Dendle and myself uh, and James Leal were at site just a couple of weeks ago in Australia, along with Festival. And um, you know, this uh, this mine uh, has it's ramping down E48, which was its mainstay for some time. You know, there's a, always a mix of different uh, ore sources, which is part of the benefit of a mine like this. And uh, as you pointed out, um, you know, E26 Lift One North is the new zone they've been ramping up and they're, they're in the process of automating because this actually was the first uh, fully automated underground mine in the world. Very, very sophisticated. Um, so that's, they were about five or six months ahead of schedule. They've also, um, it, you know, increased the mill throughput um, just a year ago from 6.4 to 7.6 million tons per annum. They've done a great job of that. And since we've made the investment, there's new zones that have been discovered um, in a mine that has so much reserves and resources ahead of it. Uh, so, you know, the next cab off the rank will be yeah, E31 and E31 North at the uh, towards the end of this year. Um, there's some good gold grades associated with that. And then beyond that is uh, E22, and um, you know we expect you know just to put E22 in context, the uh, reserve grade there is about two and a half times higher than the current run of mine average. And uh, although, you know, it's important to bear in mind that, you know, E22 is going to be combined with other ore sources, but you'll be looking at about a 40% increase from current levels, um, you know, from a gold perspective when E22 comes online. Uh, So team's doing a great job. Um, They're also the focus, I know, that's been in the press of some unsolicited interest from uh, miners who are looking to potentially acquire the asset so, you know, we're watching quite closely to see um, how that unfolds. Yeah, it seems like everyone is looking for 
more copper assets these days. Yeah. Now there's a lot of interest in only so many of these out there, particularly producing assets of this sort of scale and, and duration. The second largest asset in terms of NAV is RB Platt, which is a PGM mine in South Africa. There's been a ramp up at stale drift. Maybe you can just give a, give us an update of what's happening here and it's how, how it's contributing to your geos. Yeah, this is a great asset. You know, for those who are familiar with the Bushwell Igneous Complex, there's this prolific zone in that area. A lot of the high-grade shell of Marinsky ore has really been depleted. And this mine, uh, we made this investment back in you know, 2019, where we streamed a, a gold byproduct on this PGM asset. Um, was really, you know, the, the, the proceeds from that, which was $145 million, was used to uh, buy out high-cost debt from the Anglo-Platinum joint venture at Steldrift. And for us, you know, having a high-grade, shallow ore body like this that took a decade to develop with the shaft infrastructure, and given the shallow nature of this ore body, it was quite exceptional for us to commit this capital at the end. You know, it's highly mechanized, a good workforce, and importantly in that area, you've got a um, an incredible uh, license to operate with the Buffer King who were large owners of the assets and uh, the community work they do is incredible. And we contribute about 100,000 US a year in scholarship programs to support those initiatives. But, you know, the, that mine, Steldrift, um, is continuing to ramp. It's a source of future GEOs. And for us, um, importantly, this is a, you know, it's, it's a three decade plus mine life ahead of it, uh, which, you know, is obviously very um, appealing from an investor point of view. Uh, it also has multiple ore sources uh, going through uh, through the processing facilities. It has been the attention of prolonged takeover activity from Northern and Implats, you know, one of the largest platinum producers in the world. And uh, that's finally, um, you know, had a result with Implats uh, or Implats uh, prevailing on that, uh, on that. So they're now going to be an affiliate. Um, for us, it's also been gratifying to see you know, some I think there's some out there who think that streaming um, and royalty financing is not often uh, beneficial for equity, and this is a great example where that's just not true. Uh, when we did the deal in 2019, their market cap, uh, you know, at the time was a RB Play was about a billion dollars, and they're over two billion dollars now. At a time when you know equities have been a bit under pressure, so it's been great to see a win-win all around. But the operation is doing well. There's there's more to come on the ramp up. And that's uh, been a good investment for us. The third asset I want to touch on is Cerro Lindo, which is a large polymetallic mine in Peru, and it's located 2,000 meters above sea level. And it experienced a slowdown earlier this year in production due to weather. Maybe you can just touch on what exactly happened and has this slowdown or stoppage impacted your geos? Yeah, so... Cerro Lindo was our very first investment at the end of 2016. A VMS style deposit a few a few hours south, uh, driving from Lima, 2,000 meters or so above sea level, and a very capital efficient business that's had this beautiful cadence of reserve replacement. So they produce a copper, lead, and zinc concentrates, and uh, we we stream silver as a byproduct on that, which is a small part of their revenue. Um, you know, it's a mine that has already replaced the reserve a year or so ago that we'd underwritten. And you'll see that, you know, they've they continue to discover more in the southeast, which will add to the life of the asset. I think to your question, you know, they had a we are seeing more extreme weather events all over the place and for a pretty dry climate, uh, because all their water comes from diesel, they've got dry stack tailings, 
and it's not a high rainfall region. They had this uh, cyclone Yaku um, earlier in the year, and in March they were down for a couple of weeks, just given mud flows and damage to infrastructure. But uh, you know, the Nexa team did a great job, both um, getting back online, rehabilitating the operations, and helping support their communities. We also put about a fifty thousand dollar check in there just to help with those um, community efforts over that period. And um, it's been gratifying to see Nexa bounce back so quickly with that operation. Uh, they've reaffirmed their guidance for the year. Uh, there will be, um, you know, just a timing impact analysis for us, but it shouldn't be super material. And um, it's been a really good partnership for us on that asset as well. Sean, you've touched on a number of your larger assets, but you have a portfolio of over 200 development and exploration assets. And I'm curious if there's one or two assets in there that you're excited about. And is there an asset you own whereby the operator might be undertaking a very large or aggressive exploration program that might have an impact on your geos at some point in the future? Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's one of the things, if you think about our strategy, it was really competing more with the big three and building a portfolio of, of large uh, large capital deployment opportunities on larger assets, ideally producing or near producing. So assets like Cerro Lindo, assets like North Parks. As you recall, we did the um, uh, the transaction last year and closed that earlier this year with Mavericks, which brought in another 148 assets. And it was a very complementary transaction that increased our liquidity and brought a number of cash flowing and non-cash flowing assets into enhance both our asset account, but also our diversification. And that's been beneficial for both sets of assets. So as you look forward to the growth, you'll see that you know, we've got that 21% CAGR I've mentioned earlier from 2016 through uh, last year. That's been consecutive uh, you know, annual records and gold equivalent ounces. We'll do the same this year, 100 to 115,000. And then we've got the five-year average beyond that is 140 plus and uh, no real capital requirements in there. So as you look to that, and it's a thing I think that the market under values underappreciates. People look at spreadsheets and at asset value. They don't look at risk carefully. And anyone who's been in the mining sector for more than a nanosecond will understand that the risk profile of a going concern operating asset that is extending mine life or perhaps has expansion opportunities with a workforce that's been doing it for a long time and a, and a history and a cadence of capital deployment and a low cost structure is quite different to someone who's trying to build a new mine or finance a new mine permanently. So when you consider the proportion of our portfolio that is producing, so we've got 29 assets that produce 80% of our net asset value and 200 that are pre-production, which presents huge optionality. And if you consider that, it's more in line with what you'd see with the big three. And when you think about the intermediates, you'd see something more like 40 or 50% in that you know, yet to be producing category. So the overall risk profile is quite different. So to answer your question, given that context, the things I'm actually most excited about is the 140,000 plus is really primarily from funded reserves and expansion opportunities. Things like North Parks with E22 that we've already discussed. Uh, you know, when you're seeing a 40% kicker uh, from a mine that in, in ounces coming out of that asset, from an asset that has uh, extended mine life, it has half a billion ounces or sorry, half a billion tons of reserve grade reserves that are in the ground there already. Before they do further exploration, a thousand plus square kilometer land package that you know we are, our investors are exposed to, and this great reliable cadence of adding on new um, new ore zones over time, that 
that's a great position to be in. You know, I mentioned Seralindo with life extension. Uh, that's been great to see. And then we've got this portfolio of really quite interesting opportunities in the collective. You know, I think if you see there's companies out there that would give their left arm to have 200 assets with, you know, these uh, pre-production optionality um, you know, characteristics that I think are underappreciated and undervalued in our portfolio. So we've got things like SK Creek. We've got Royalty on Newfound Gold that's had incredible uh, results of late, as uh, many of you would have seen. You know, Agnico's making uh, good progress on Hope Bay, which nobody's really paying attention to in our our story. Um, we've invested years ago in Tamarack, for example, which as the United States looks for, uh, you know, sources of energy independence and nickel. Um, I was in the nickel business for a lot of years. We made the investment there many years ago before, let's say, people found religion on those possibilities. And uh, it's a it's a, 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 got a joint venture with Tesla, and there's a lot of good exploration potential on a district basis that we're very excited about. And we were at Fostable just a few weeks ago, and you've seen the history of finding these, you know, these high-grade uh, zones. And I think there's more of that to come, which we're quite excited about in the future. And even small assets that are obscure, we've you know, we invested years ago in a little asset called Stahl in uh, in Australia. It's privately owned, one of the wealthiest families in Australia. Uh, when we made that investment, they had no reserves or resources. They've got uh, about a million ounces that they've proven up. They continue to extend. They're doing about 60,000 ounces a year and just incredibly capital efficiently. So, um, yeah, in a portfolio like this, I think it's that diversification, that low, low risk nature of that growth that uh, I'm, I'm particularly excited about. You raised some very interesting points, and of course, the royalty model has many advantages, and you highlighted the main one being the optionality. And Sean, I want to move on, and I want to hear your views on what's happening within the pipeline. How many deals are being shopped, and what size are they, and in, in, are they more gold or copper focused? And I'm just kind of curious what's happening within the pipeline, given what's happening within the current economic environment with higher interest rates. Yeah. I'd zoom out for a second and look at it from the seven-year journey we've been on. And if you think about it, we started our business in 16 at a time when the balance sheet repair that was happening with the large diversifieds, gold miners, and that had really occurred. And we heard a lot on Bay Street saying, well, there's nothing to do anymore in this sector, which we fundamentally believe that there's a, and I still believe even more so now, that there's an increasing need for, you know, patient sophisticated capital for the mining sector and that's what this represents so we've seen over the years as the cycles moved still opportunities for balance sheet repair particularly single asset producers or guys who are building new mines um, juniors always have capital needs and increasingly i think that's more acute now than ever the equity capital markets have not been very supportive um, and you know there's always mine build opportunities what i think we've seen for the first time in a couple of years, which I'm, I'm very encouraged by, is both uh, M&A activity, and we've seen some announcements uh, with Royal Gold just a week or so ago, where there is um, stream financing, royalty financing, as part of um, you know a fully funded acquisition opportunity. And we've seen a lot of those over the years. They are always hard to handicap. But I think in a world where people are positioning and I mentioned North Parks earlier, you know, people are looking to acquire uh, good strategic copper and base metal and, um, you know, energy transition minerals, critical minerals. Uh, so I think that is a, a, a growing opportunity 
for this form of financing as part of a sensible capital structure and funding cocktail. Um, we see it in mind builds all the time, as I mentioned. And, um, you know, it's a thing we've been quite cautious on in the last couple of years. And I'd say the same about acquisition financing, because I think the opportunity set is likely to grow rather than shrink for the streaming and royalty space. I think it's uh, been seen as a, a better understood, uh, quite advantageous form of capital when done right. And um, the challenge at the moment is debt's more expensive, equity is more expensive and harder to come by. Um, I think that a lot of the vehicles we've seen recently that have acquired assets in some cases have been quite highly levered. So you really have to consider the risks as well as the opportunities. I think there's more opportunity, but you also need to understand just how much liquidity is in place and what that means from a leverage point of view. So we do a lot of analysis along those lines. But I foresee more opportunity there. We're seeing things in the hundreds of millions of dollars along in that category. And um, you know, we continue to see the usual um, uh, you know, menu of mine development opportunities and uh, you know, non-core asset divestments and smaller businesses looking to you know, fund uh, their way through. And I think hopefully over time, you'll continue to see more consolidation opportunities for the sector. You mentioned earlier about this push toward an energy transition and the need for more copper. 94% of your portfolio is focused on precious metals, but given this big push toward energy transition and decarbonization, would you ever look at other assets outside of precious metals, maybe lithium, cobalt, nickel? Yeah, the short answer is yes. I mean, I spent far more time actually in uh, bolts and uh, base metals and diversified miners like the issue Billiton and Extrata than actually in gold businesses. And uh, if you consider that 70 plus percent of our ounces come from byproducts, which I believe are truly synergistic forms of financing, both for the you know, the miner as well as for our investors. Um, you know, we, we really like those opportunities. I think it's the highest and best use of our capital if we can provide competitive, um, you know, long tenure financing to those either seeking to acquire those energy transition metals or mines. Um, and indeed, at the same time, take back uh, an entitlement to precious metals, uh, royalties or streams. That really is a win-win. And uh, I think there's a lot more of those opportunities in the future. Um, we have done and we have exposure to, you know, copper, uh, nickel, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, I spent years in Extrata Nickel after we took over Falconbridge. We understand that value chain very, very well. And, uh, you know, we'll continue to look for those opportunities. And we have room, as you you, you know, we're 94% gold and silver focused. We have room to include more um, base metal exposure in there. We won't do uh, oil and gas or coal. You know, we're carbon neutral and we'll maintain that. And we'll stay focused on our strategy. But um, we won't go overweight. And so I see a lot more opportunity. And we have looked over time at uh, like repeatedly actually at lithium opportunities and cobalt as part of that strategy. I think the thing we've run into over times is there are certain points where just those commodities, which can be extremely volatile, uh, I get squeamish, not on the technical risk, but at times where you could be underwriting a commodity price outlook, which is, you know, perhaps on the upper end of, uh, of my risk appetite. No, you raise a good point. We've seen that with lithium; it got as high as I believe seventy or eighty thousand dollars, and now it's pulled back to thirty to forty thousand. So, to your point, very volatile. Very volatile, and some of them, you know, the question is, what are battery chemistries and EVs, for example, going to look like in 
in the years ahead and uh, what are the substitution uh, scenarios that might play out. So things like copper are far easier to, um, you know, place a bet on and, and, and arguably nickel as well. Sean, I want to speak to valuation now. The senior royalty companies, Franco and Wheaton, are trading at higher multiples than Triple Flag is. What will you and your team do to realign your valuation with the larger royalty companies? Yeah, so for us, it's always about building a high-quality portfolio with you know the sort of growth that we saw you know Franco and others generate out the gate. And if you think about when Franco was spun out of Newmont, uh, they had a lot of oil and gas exposure there, but you would have seen a a size that was very similar to when we emerged in the public markets a couple of years ago. Uh, the growth trajectory from there has been something which they've been incredibly, not just them, but others very successful at. And, you know, they've attracted their premium multiple. You know, for us, um, we've had very similar characteristics. You've seen our record growth rates in actual ounces. Um, our focus is on just demonstrating the continued sensible execution, a high-quality portfolio that we benchmark with those best three. And so, we say no a lot. We've seen over 700 opportunities for the deals that we've done. And the real focus is to continue to focus on those higher quality, you know, lower cost position and the cost curve. You know, most of the assets are really in sort of nearly 80% are in primarily Australia, you know, Canada, United States, good parts of South America. And um, we're making our portfolio look very much like, you know, call it that sort of early stage of those businesses as they continue their growth. And we haven't gone and um, perhaps tainted the model with uh, different risk classes like a lot of mining equity juniors. So to your point, um, when we emerged, um, you know, we know that our valuation would have been at a significant discount to what we see as that asset for the future. A lot of that was a function of having a large concentrated shareholder with limited, limited liquidity as a new issuer. And also the fact that we were private for five years. So our track record was hopefully evident, but it, you know, people want to see how we how we mature in the public realm. People are increasingly seeing that, and after the Mavericks transaction, we've seen a tenfold increase in liquidity, some index inclusion, some really high quality names that have come into the story as that liquidity profile has improved. And I think you'll see more of that in the future, and we should see that uh, discount uh, continue to shrink over time because even things like portfolio duration, geographic location, diversification. Um, you know, uh, precious metals exposure, uh, team track record and execution, low GNA, all these things, and dividend, by the way, which we pay the highest dividend yield in the space. All of those features, I think, um, stack up very well with uh, the big three. And, uh, you know, in terms of scale, we've shown we can execute the largest deals in, uh, in the sector, uh, given our track record today. Sean, as we wrap up, what can investors expect in terms of news flow from Triple Flag in the coming months? Yeah, look, we're a long-run um, business that is really focused. You know, we're not trying to uh, talk up the story and you know seek an exit at some point. It's really been a, I think, a pragmatic, steady story about growth, high margins, a pragmatic uh, uh, capital structure, and uh, patient deal execution, and and focusing on decent returns and cash yields over time. And you'll see more of the same. Like the embedded growth we've got, we've talked about. You know, we're on track for another record this year. Uh, you'll see a number of um, catalytic events linked to you know, assets like North Parks and this year and beyond. And you know, we look forward to seeing the people don't always renew their mind plans every year, but you'll continue to see more of that coming in as you see that you know the the delivery and the ramp up towards that 140,000 plus ounces a year. 
you know, our trailing cash generation on this portfolio, you know, bear in mind, we had nothing in 2016. We're about 150 million US dollars on a backward looking basis. And, um, you know, we only consume about 40 million or so through the dividend. So we have very limited debt after the um, acquisition of Mavericks that should be paid out through this year. And, you know, we'll just continue to uh, be very discerning as we deploy capital on a, on a deal basis because we're seeing a very active deal pipeline at the moment. So more of the same, continued growth and uh, continue to get uh, uh, runs on the board in the public realm. Well, Sean, that was a great overview and a great update on triple flag precious metals. And I want to thank you for spending time with us today. And I look forward to future updates. Jeremy, thanks. It's great chatting to you. Did you know we're now on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? So now you can listen to us on Spotify or Apple and listen and learn when you're stuck in traffic on the 401 in Toronto, the I-95 in New York, or the I-5 in LA. So be sure to subscribe and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Hi, Michael. Thank you very much for joining us today. The Silver Institute recently published the World Silver Survey, which is the Bible for the silver sector. And this is where I want to focus our discussion. What were the overarching themes found in the 2023 World Silver Survey, and how have these themes changed from previous years? Well, thank you so much, James. I do appreciate the opportunity. Uh, last year, the story was really about one country in particular, and that country was India. Um, they paved the way with respect to investment demand, um, jewelry demand, silverware demand, and so forth. And I'll get into some of the details later. But to paint a picture of 2022, um, you just got to look at global record of demand. Okay, We've not had that level of demand before. Physical investment, industrial demand, um, jewelry and silverware demand all posted records. So those are some of the key things. Um, India paving the way. But I think the one takeaway people want to take away from the 2022 World Silver Survey or the report uh, on it, which we, you know, the 2023 edition is a 237.7 million ounce deficit in the market. The structural deficit comes off of 100 plus ounces in 2021, and we forecast for about 141 million ounce uh, deficit for 2023. So that's a big, big number. Um, and it's the third year in a row. Uh, it tells you that people are interested in silver, even though that may not be uh, reflected in the current price. Uh, the fact of the matter is the silver market is very hot. So I want to examine some of these demand aspects in more detail. And one unique feature of silver versus gold is that it's both a monetary component and also has a very strong industrial component, which you just alluded to. And I, I want to examine both of these, beginning with the monetary or the investment demand. Maybe you can give us some detail on exactly how it was in 2022. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, we had about over 332 million ounces of silver um, allocated to what we call physical investment. So that's bars and coins. Um, that was a record year. If, if you go back through the memory book of last year, it was really difficult to get your hands on 
a silver coin, um, a silver bar. And if you were fortunate to do so, we had an exceptionally high premiums in the market. As I mentioned, India was a top performer in this category last year. They had a 188% increase with respect to silver investment. Um, and that was really benefiting from lower prices and bargain hunting in that country. It's a, it, 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 we just got back from a, 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 a conference in, in India, our first one. We look forward to, to going back to that country. It's fascinating. They will be leaders in the market for many years to come. Of course, they have a strong cultural affinity for silver. But when you look at globally and you look at what's happening with investment, uh, it's physical investment, which is paving the way. Institutional investment, on the other hand, not quite as strong. We actually saw a drawdown last year in um, exchange-traded products, um, the first one in several years. We think that's stabilizing now, and we may even show up on the positive side uh, of that category at the end of 2023. But uh, it's net physical investment, which is really leading the way. So from a retail point of view, the retail investor is very much engaged in the silver trade, but institutional investors are not? Um, well, at this point, yes. And uh, the retail investor has always been very strong. And the institutional investor has been strong. Just last year, which was just not the year for ETPs. And we're also confronted, as are many other commodities, with algorithm trading and so forth, trigger numbers, mass, massive sell-offs once a price of a commodity gets to a certain level. And silver certainly experienced that last year. Mike, that was a good overview of what's happening on the investment side. Now I want to look at the industrial side and what's happening there. Maybe you can just give us a brief overview of what happened in 2022. Sure. So what we experienced last year was uh, a, a lot of our, our a lot of the global economy coming back online after basically two years of the pandemic. And what we're witnessing um, throughout the world is an effort to decarbonize uh, energy supplies. And silver is a big benefactor of that effort. We had over 140 million ounces of silver go into photovoltaics. So solar panels last year, um, electric vehicles and so forth, the drive to electrify um, our vehicle fleets across the world uh, adds more silver uh, uh, demand uh, to that sector. And, and the reason is, is because not so much silver is not included in the battery as we know, but it is used in the contacts. It is the glue that makes these automobiles run. So as the shift comes to more um, electrification of these cars, the more complexity required, uh, more silver will be will be chewed up in these vehicles. So we think right now about 65 to 70 million ounces of silver are used in all automotives, and that includes internal combustion engines. We think that number is going to grow to about 90 plus million ounces by 2025. And on the PV side, we think that number is going to be well over 160 million ounces for 2023. So just to clarify, industrial demand in 2022 was 540 million ounces. And of that, 140 million ounces was allocated to the solar industry? That's correct, which falls under the electrical and electronics 
section in our, um, but we broke that out. If you go to our survey, we break out the key components of industrial demand for the, for the reader. Mike, when you look at supply and demand fundamentals, mine production is decreasing, demand is increasing. We've had record deficits in the last two years. In fact, the deficits of the last two years make up for the oversupply in the last 10 years. Why isn't the silver price significantly higher? Why isn't it at 30, 40, or $50 an ounce? I don't know. I mean, look at gold hit an all time high earlier this year. Silver is basically a $23 to $24 metal at the moment. That being said, the opportunity for silver, I believe, is very, very strong with the decarbonization, with the fact that mine supplies it, it, it decreased last year. We're only calling for a marginal increase this year. We need the institutional investor to step back up to the plate. The retail investor is there, and I think there's a lot of room for silver to grow. If you look at the 30 analysts from the LBMA conference late last year, making their price predictions or forecasts for 2023, their average price was $24 and change, okay? And, or I'm sorry, $23 and change. And that's basically where we are right now, but we think there's more room to the upside than there is the downside. And when you look at the that survey of analysts, what would be the high end? What would be the low end? If memory serves me correct, the high end was about $35 and the low end was plus 14. And given that 70% of silver production is produced as a byproduct, so that is it's coming from gold miners or base metal producers, do you think that the fact that copper has been trading at a relatively high level and therefore copper producers are going all out and as a result, they're producing a lot of silver and they're just dumping it onto the market. Do you think that also might be holding the price of silver down? Well, it could, but the fact of the matter is, is we had less supply of silver from the mining sector last year. We're only calling for a modest supply of silver uh, for 2023, an increase, I should say. So the supply of silver, whether it comes from primary mines or as a byproduct, and you're right, it's about 70% of silver comes as a byproduct. Whether or not uh, uh, an overmined uh, copper sector or gold or lead and zinc, um, will that lead to more supply on the market? I don't know, but our forecasts indicate that this is going to be a very, really modest increase this year, and that's primarily due to projects um, that were um, under suspension and so forth that are coming back online. And um, with respect to copper, uh, in particular, um, I don't, don't know. They are obviously trying to get the most bang for their buck at the, with copper being um, in such demand on the industrial side, especially on the decarbonization side. But silver is too. I mean, we like to say that silver is also a green metal. Um, I have said this before and I'll say it again. If copper is the super highway to decarbonization, then silver is the glue because silver, none of these components are going to work unless you have silver. Mike, as we wrap up, what other events or what other reports does the Silver Institute have planned for the remainder of the year? Sure. So uh, throughout the year, we'll be releasing a, a, a rather comprehensive report on silver's use in green energy. 
we will of course take a look at solar and electric vehicles um, but we also want to take a look at wind and nuclear what role does silver have in those two alternative energy sources we're putting out a report on uh, bullion coin sales throughout the world um, the markets the key markets the key drivers not just coins but bars as well we're also putting out a report on factors that determine the silver price. So we're excited about uh, those three. Uh, we'll be putting out our interim report um, on the silver market later this uh, this fall, where we will take a look back at the World Silver Survey and see where those numbers are as we look to close out 2023. Uh, we'll be doing webinars. We're going to do a webinar on uh, commemorative coinage programs talking to directors of various U.S. mints, and we're going to do another one on our our report on the uh, clean, green energy. So we've got a busy agenda, and I thank you for your time today, James. Well, Mike, that was a great overview of the silver market, and I want to thank you for spending time with us today. If someone wants to find out more about silver and also receive a copy or download a copy of the silver survey, where can they go? They can go to silverinstitute.org. Um, and you can sign up for all of our information that we post and, and send out via email at the bottom of our uh, homepage. But you can also download all of our publications in the publication section, as well as sign up for our Silver News, which is a bi-monthly publica publication. And you can download any one of our World Silver Surveys. We have the entire library um, posted online. Once again, Mike, thank you. Thank you, James. Well, that concludes our conference, and I want to thank everyone for taking time to be with us today. We have some amazing conferences coming up, so be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Bloor Street Capital, and you can also follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Once again, thank you for your support.